Hello, and welcome to Tabletop Game Talk, On Topic, a show where we talk about tabletop gaming topics of all kinds. I'm one of your hosts, Fletcher. I'm Kitty. And I'm Chris. Today we're talking about gaming with kids. We're bridging the gap between tabletop gaming show and parenting show. We may not be experts at child development, but that's why we're using the Life Kit podcast titled The Key to Raising Brilliant Kids, Play a Game, as a source for the show. So at least some part of the show will have expert input. But first, as always, a thank you to our Patreon friends of the show, Adam Harrison and the SGC, and a huge thank you to all of our other patrons as well. I am miserable. I'm I sorry. blame kids. <laughs> do, wait, what? What do you blame? I blame kids. Oh, that's my fair. Misery. I thought you said you blame me. And I was no. like, I had nothing to do with this this time. Uh, I blame you for most everything else. No. Fair. <laughs> Zachary got the super cold. That's what I'm calling it. They call it oh, it's RSV or whatever, something something virus. Yes. But it it's it presents as a cold to most people, but it's like a super cold. It's like a three week long cold. So he gave it to Sydney and I, making our packs fairly miserable because we were both like hacking up lungs. Sydney had it so way worse than I did. So anyone who went to packs and now has RSV. You can say thank you <laughs> so to Chris. You, you spread it to everyone. <laughs> we may have infected the entire show. It is entirely possible. Or it could have been that we went after we were already infected for over a week and therefore we weren't contagious anymore. Apologies. Um, I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. But I'm going to make it through this It's usually less show. contagious after you're showing the gross symptoms. It's most contagious when you don't have symptoms. Yeah. Yeah, and Sydney was, like, she had to drop out of the second vault tour because she had a coughing fit during the third game, and then she just came back and she's like, I'm sorry, I have to concede. And then she just went back to the hotel room and collapsed for the night. Ugh, it was terrible. it was rough. How was she yeah. doing? Um, how was she doing in that tournament? Um, yeah. That one, she was 1-1. I don't care about her physically. That one, she was 1-1. She did really well in the first one, though. She was she ended up ending 4-2, uh, but she lost in a tiebreaker, like going to time on the last game. And had the mm. game continued for a few more turns, I think she would have pulled it off. But thems are the way those things work. She did get to go dress shopping with her best friend, the day, the next day, though, which she would have had to go to a Keyforge tournament had she made it to day two, but she would have dropped anyway because she wanted to do the dress shopping instead. But uh, true friends, but yeah. So how was your guys this weekend's? Good. Uh, what did I do? I got back from Austin on Saturday, and then on found Sunday, out that it was cold. I, it was not cold in Austin. No, but here it was. <laughs> well, yeah, relatively, yeah. When I got back, it was like 40 degrees, so it wasn't that bad. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I just uh, chillaxed for a day, really. Really do anything. It's nice. Yeah, we spent most of Sunday traveling. Our house looks like Christmas exploded in it after this weekend. I still need to do that. Christmas like, exploded. <laughs> I mean, in a really nice way, Like, but every surface in our house has a decoration. Spencer <laughs> is very into Christmas. I like Christmas a lot, but like... I think it's shocking how much Spencer likes Christmas. Yeah. My, when I was growing up, our tradition was Thanksgiving weekend. Usually Thanksgiving Day, we put up the Christmas tree, and then New Year's Day, we take it down. And I'm trying to bring that back, but we always travel for Thanksgiving, so I'm not here. So now I'm thinking, like, the Saturday of Thanksgiving weekend. So that was my plan. But then Sydney's parents came over, and her mom's Jewish, so they're not really big into Christmas. But Sydney's big into Christmas, even though she's Jewish. So... We're gonna get it's a Christmas. It's a fun holiday. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna get a Christmas tree up before Christmas. It just might be New Year's Eve. Um, 
Wait, what? That's that after work? Christmas. That's after New Year's Christmas. Eve of Christmas Eve would be a better time to put it up there. <laughs> we're really, we're going to get, we're super into Christmas. When's Christmas again? <laughs> Have I mentioned that I'm, my, my mind is, is, is in virus mode. If you were actually celebrating the real Christmas, you can't take your tree down until January 6th. Oh, is there a, I, I don't. Why? Because the 12 days of Christmas start on Christmas Day and end on January 6th, the epiphany. I thought the 12 days of Christmas were totally made up. No. It is uh, the actual church season of Christmas. Right oh. now, the season we are in is Advent. Wait, I know nothing about this. What? What do you do on the days besides, like, partridge in- and pear trees? <laughs> the, I don't think the song really has anything to do with the actual 12 days of Christmas. Like, so Five the church has, <laughs> but there are church seasons, like liturgically speaking. Now we're becoming a liturgical podcast as well as a parenting and gaming podcast. <laughs> but if you're actually interested in this, there are tons and tons and tons of seasons in the church. One of them is Advent, which is the 24 days preceding Christmas and Christmas from Christmas Day through Epiphany, January 6th. Those are both church seasons <laughs> in which the secular word world celebrates Christmas. All right. I'm bad huh. at church. I had no idea. <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> Fletcher, you're mostly Jewish too, though, right? Mostly? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I was raised Jewish. There you go. You're mostly Jewish. Done. All right. Let's talk about something besides religion. Let's talk about raising kids. Because <laughs> there's no conflict about that. Speaking of conflict, I would like to take umbrage with the intro that I didn't read until I was saying it out loud. Okay. I'm sort of child care expert I As somebody who has part of a degree in early childhood education. I was expecting you to edit it, but you didn't. So I figured, okay, I must hit that nail right on the head. <laughs> would you like to redo <laughs> the intro? No. It's too All late right. now. We've gone too far. <laughs> All right. Well, this is... Also, I don't think part of a degree in child- <laughs> childhood ed is actually expert level. But I do have quite a bit of knowledge about I have kids. not a ton of knowledge, but I have a lot of opinions. Great. <laughs> well, that's all that really matters. Perfect. I'm sure you'll do really well at this. I hey, I'm just saying. I'm social sciences are interesting because a lot of it is just I gonna guess this. Let's try it out and see what kind, how many generations we mess up. I mean, that's all science except are we messing up their brains or their environment? You know. Well, there was a period of time. I I want to say like 30s, 40s, 50s, somewhere in there, where the predominant theory was. Don't touch your babies because you'll make them dependent on you. So if you want an independent child, you just can't touch them. I wouldn't say it was a predominant theory, but it was a theory. It was a theory. So there's a lot of weird stuff that we've done with kids. But I liked this particular Life Kit episode. Um, I don't listen to Life Kit a lot because it has topics all over the place. But every once in a while, someone will say, hey, you should listen to this podcast. And it's usually a Life Kit podcast because I'm like, oh, that's interesting cool topics um terrence pointed this one out we will say that the title the key to raising brilliant kids question mark play a game wait i read that as a period on the question mark it's the key to raising brilliant (laughs) kids play a game that's how it's supposed to be there you go there you go um now the the episode itself talked about making games out of like everyday activities to help 
you know, stimulate kids and get them to cooperate and stuff. We're going to take this a little further and actually... This one's called Paint the Fence. <laughs> this one's called <laughs> fence. Sand the Floor. Yeah. How fast can we paint each one? Um, which well, works. I think what it's really supporting is play-based learning. So it's not sit down and do math flashcards with your kids. It's let's count all the pieces while we clean up our toys or let's count how many flowers we see on our walk to the park. That kind of counting is going to serve your kid better than addition and subtraction flashcards is going to in the long run. Or even a book that has, you know, here's four kittens, here's six puppies. (sighs) I cannot read Five Little Pumpkins one more time. It's not entertaining for either of us. That's a sequel, though. Five Little Pumpkins, (laughs) one more time. (laughs) I can recite this book from memory. Player three is obsessed. I keep threatening to hide it while he's sleeping, but then I forget that it's it's in his room. It's only six pages long. What? He's like, I can recite this book from memory. And I just said, to be fair, it's only six pages long. That's true. (laughs) You know, how many six-page books can you recite from memory? I've got at least Depends ten. On how down many now. words there are? In there. <laughs> um, but it I, also I helps do... that they all rhyme, so you know. Yeah. Well, that's how we would pass on information before we wrote things down. Is you know rhymes and poetry. So, uh, but yeah, I think like there is something different between memorizing one little pumpkin, two little pumpkins, or do you want to recite it so that everyone can be on the same page? Five here? little pumpkins growing in the patch. One could not be picked because he's just too quick to catch. Four little pumpkins jumping in the hay. Then a friendly farmer comes and carries one away. Should I keep going? You can stop there. No, that's enough. (laughs) But what happens there is kids memorize that, right? So they can say five, four, three, two, one if they're talking about pumpkins, but they don't understand the concept of five, four, three, two, one when you when they learn to memorize things. I see this a lot, especially with math. Math is one of those things where people like kids think they need to memorize how math works. And that's not actually how you learn math. Math is why it works. And then you can figure out how to solve problems. So when you're reading books and flashcards and all of that, you're memorizing. And it's a different part of your brain. And I think that it's not a game-playing thing. It's not a problem-solving thing. It's a memorization thing. It also depends on how you read a book. Because you can read a book in a way where... You're learning from the book, but you can read a book in a way where you're just memorizing it. And this was something that was very hard for me to learn in school, was that I didn't have to memorize the book. I had to understand the concepts of the book. So once again, with Five Little Pumpkins, we don't just read the text, five, four, three, two, one. We count the pumpkins on each page. And then sometimes we'll flip back and go, five pumpkins, take away one. Now we have four pumpkins. And we count them. And then the monkey also has to count the pumpkins. And he has to take the monkey's little stuffed animal paw to count all the pumpkins. And then we have to point out how many owls are in this page. How many bundles of corn can we see? Where's the kitty cat? And like when you're reading a book at that level with a kid, it becomes more like a game. Yeah, you're turning a dictation moment into an interactive moment, into like a cooperative moment. moment. So it can take us half an hour to read (laughs) a six-page book. Which is good, as long as you're not trying to put them down to bed. Which I always am. (laughs) Which you always 
<laughs> so this podcast, though, um, Kathy Hirsch Pesek, I believe is her name, and Roberta Golenkoff. Um, they were, they wrote a book called, uh, Becoming Brilliant, the science, what science tells us about raising successful children. And this is a really short podcast. It's like 16 minutes and I think really only about 12 minutes of, of talking with her. But the things that I want to kind of focus on from this podcast are their six C's and how this can apply to playing games with kids and why this matters. Because one of the things that she mentions is if you're doing these things, these are how kids learn and how they become successful. And the first one is collaboration. The next one is communication, content, critical thinking, creative innovation, and then confidence. And I think all of these things, as soon as you hear them, you immediately start thinking about our hobby. Games, games, games. (laughs) Yep. So, yeah. and I think that's a really cool crossover. So maybe we're not going to talk about, I mean, we could talk about raising kids directly. And, you know, I have a one-year-old, you have a two-year-old. Fletcher is about a year or two away from having a, a whole hockey team. <laughs> um, I don't know why it's hockey, but it sounded right. Um, but really just how to play games with kids and how these things can change the way kids will interact in the future. And I have some strong opinions on that, too, but I, I want to kind of go over this first. So, Kitty, I'm going to let you lead this one for two reasons. Number one, I'm going to have an occasional coughing fit that I need to mute. And <laughs> number two, you are the expert on the show. Ish. Expert-ish I'd on like the show. like expert-ish all of my opinions here. <laughs> so, collaboration. Ready, go. Collaboration is super important to kids, and it is something that we learn especially if we're playing cooperative games. I've seen a real big rise in cooperative games for kids, which I love. I think it's kind of coincided with a rise in cooperative games in the hobby as a whole. But there's a game called Orchard, where everyone is trying to save fruit from the raven, and you basically roll a die, and there are colors that represent the different fruit, and then there's a raven side of the die. And if you roll the raven, you get a piece of the raven, and if you create the whole raven before you capture enough fruit, you lose. And it's just, it looks a lot like Hi-Ho Cheerio, which I grew up playing. It's a numbers game. You spin, you collect the cherries off your tree. Whoever gets their cherries first wins. And this just flips it from being competitive to being a cooperative experience in which you learn to collaborate with your friends. And I think the big thing, so Hi-Ho Cheerio, I've heard people defend it by saying, yes, it's not a game. It's a random die roll. And if you roll your color more than anyone else first, you, you'll you win. But it teaches turn taking, it teaches counting. But I think it does it in such a way where it doesn't actually teach thinking. It just teaches those mechanics. I I am blue. I spun blue. I'm going to take two two of my cherries off the tree. One, two. Right. It's very much just kind of go through those motions over and over where the game you're talking about does all of that, but then takes it to another level of working with the other people you're playing with. And I, it, it, I mean, if you think about it, like how can that not be better for kids than just a straight up, you know, you rolled a two or you spun a two. So here count one, two cherries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely. I think that playing cooperative games with kids is like, where can you go wrong? <laughs> yeah. I uh, will tell you where you can go wrong because I have an opinion on this. 
But and I'm curious about your response to this. You can go wrong by helping the kids too much. And I say that by if you tell a kid what the right answer is, you are not letting them think. If you ask them what you should do and let them come up with their own answer, correct or not, you are teaching them how to think. And if they come up with the wrong answer and you just follow through and do that and they find out they lose, you're also teaching them how to fail and try again. So I am a huge fan of not letting kids win, either in a cooperative or competitive setting. (laughs) I I think, oh, what was, it was in the podcast, I think they mentioned, um, if you don't, if they don't lose, they can't know what it is like to win or something along those lines. It's not fun to win if you always win. Yeah. There's no joy to it. There's no sense of pride. Kids should have pride in themselves. Yeah. And but if you win because, well, that's what always happens, then you don't understand the joy of it. You just, well, this is what happens. But if you lose, especially if you lose enough and then you win, it feels so much better. Now, I have not been in this situation, but this is one of those things like, you know, Zachary's still too young. He's barely he's not even 11 months yet so he's not playing these kind of games yet but really what i'm looking forward to is playing a cooperative game and letting them make the decisions you know basically you have to participate in your way but let them make their own decisions and lose and then play again and see them make different decisions because last time i did this this time i'm going to try that without helping them without saying oh maybe we should try this well that i think would be amazing to watch to- there is a point where, and this goes both with competitive and cooperative games, you don't want them to lose so much that they give up, that Correct. it becomes unfun. Yep. So you have to find, I think that this is kind of the game's job, but it's also your job. Is So back to Orchard, it is random. There's no skill. There's It's luck. It's luck which rolls more faster. But it is still the same as like Hi-Ho Cherio. You're teaching these skills, you're counting, you're matching colors, whatever it is. Um, But also, you know, it's not somebody's fault if you lose and there's not like the decision that you made wrong or whatever. You can just kind of blame it on luck. And by the luck of the draw, sometimes you're going to win and sometimes you're going to lose. Sometimes it's going to be too hard. You roll too many ravens in a roll and that's it. But sometimes you're going to have like one of those super successful where it's just like, I just keep rolling exactly what I need and it feels so good moments. And the the random elements of the game should be so that the kids both lose and win so that they still have fun playing, but don't always win. I think this also goes for non-gamers. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this really goes into what we were talking about last week, too, is getting better at a game. Yep. Yeah. And I, I think we hit on this a lot there. Yeah. And the more I think we'll talk about these these concepts and playing games with kids, I think the more that these can apply to bringing other people into the hobby. Um, I do a lot of you know interviewing and hiring and stuff. And the people that I am most interested in hiring are the people that know how to figure things out, not the people who know things. And I know that sounds weird, but I don't need someone who knows things. Because what ends up happening there is if I ask them to do something they don't know, they will tell me, oh, I don't know how to do that. Okay, I don't care. Figure it out. 
I want the person who's like, <laughs> I mean, it's true though, right? That's your job. I, it's your job. Figure it out. Yeah. That's can't what I know want. everything. Yep. So, and especially because we're, I'm in development, Fletcher's in development and especially in development. I'm like, I'm never going to ask you to do something you've done before. You've already done that. I'm always going to ask you to do something new. So if you can't figure out how to solve problems, that's a problem in later in life. And there are a lot of adults that are in that situation. I know how to do this, this, and this. I don't know how to do that. Therefore, I'm not going to do that, or I'm not going to put myself in a situation to do that. I think playing more games as adults to learn those skills you may not have learned as a kid, how to figure things out, is beneficial for everybody. So not calling anyone in our audience a child, but if you want to get better at being able to problem solve, playing some of those some of those games is problem solving games will help you with those skills. Actually, mm-hmm. I think our audience is probably quite smart because they play games and people who play games are smart. Less cognitive <laughs> decline Good as you age. Yes. <laughs> That's true. It's less and what that was in our dice tower news, right? Um Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Playing games leads to less cognitive uh dissidence or whatever that decline. De- 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 yeah. It, it was cognitive decline was yeah. the phrase used in the article. Oh. Apparently, I need to play more games. Yes, (laughs) I need to play more games. Um, My cognitive (laughs) is declining. All right. The second C is communication. So I think that you cannot play a game without effective communication. I think it is one of the most important skills in playing a game and can often be overlooked because I think some gamers are not great at it and could use more practice in the skill themselves. But it is really important to good gameplay. I think one of the things that she brought up um, in this podcast that I found really interesting is communication is not about how it's not about telling somebody or even teaching them something. It's about talking with them. It's about a dialogue. And if Mm -hmm. we think of communication in a gamer's description, we have alpha players. Alpha players are bad at communications. They're bad at the dialogue. They may be good at the game and figuring out the puzzle and telling people what to do, but they're not good at that dialogue and conversing with the rest of the group and actually communicating and coming to a consensus at the group level. And learning young for this type of communication is really, really important because it's hard for us when we get older to inherit this skill or not inherit but just learn this skill because it, it's just it you get i don't know it's like a subconscious thing i also think turn taking is incredibly important in communication so literally by learning how to take a turn in a game you are learning how to take a turn in a lot of things in life and conversation is all about taking turns when we communicate with others it is about listening for the information, waiting for your turn to talk, but also how to use the information that's happening as part of what you are going to do. So when you are taking a turn in a board game, it is like the other person's turn to talk. They are doing stuff that is going to affect how you play in the future. And then it is your turn to do the same back. And you have to be both paying attention to what's happening, but also know what you are going to say or do. Fletcher, do you have any comment on communication? Um, I guess, like, obviously it's really important in, in games, but it also depends on, like, the, some games it's like you don't really want to communicate, or some games, like, communication is super subtle. I'm thinking specifically of, like, 
Have you guys ever seen like competitive dominoes? <laughs> um, I'm like, aware. Yeah. Competitive dominoes, you have like a team. You have like two teams of two. And like the teammates sit across from each other, if I'm remembering this correctly. So like if you imagine a square table, your teammate mm-hmm. sits across from you. But your competitor goes like after you and before your teammate. And you can't really talk about what you have because in your the competitor will know. Yeah. So like the communication is like very subtle and you have to like know your teammate really well to set up. You can so also get really knocked for table talk too if you're trying to get a play because this is very similar to Spades, a game that um, Spencer's family plays all the time where you sit across from your partner. It's a trick taking game. You play then your opponent plays, then your partner plays. So to me, this is like an advanced form of communication. It's a nonverbal or just silent play type of thing that kids are not good at. Like young kids cannot play these kinds of games, right? They're just not ready to communicate at that level. But as they get older, if they are used to communicating in general, like, you know, as we were talking before, these games become easier to play, even though the communication is almost inverted from what you would normally expect. And I I don't know. I, to me, that's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting flip. But in all the games that I've played, when I play things like, you know, Spades, Euchre, um, any partner game where there's table talk isn't allowed, it is fun to try to anticipate what your partner needs you to do or wants to do based on what you know with all the communication you've had with them in the past or just communication you've had with in similar situations. Unless your partner is Spencer, in which you might as well just yell, wild card. And it's like, I never had any idea what he's doing. He's like, I was giving you clear signals. Obviously not. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea what's happening any of the time. (laughs) Well, this leads into the next C, which is content, which is learned through communication. I don't have as much to say here about content. (laughs) I think, I mean, with games, I guess content makes me think most of theme. I think it has to to do content is really just picking up like the rules the rules the cues um information in general so this is this is more or less like learning the vocabulary is content right yeah. so everything there's you, a lot of aspects i guess <laughs> yeah everything you do is giving you more content with how to deal with the world around you and content here can be you know you could play the same game over and over and over with your kids but you're going to have a limited space of content to learn from introducing new things, not too fast because you need to have time to digest the first thing before you can move on to the next thing. But as you build these layers of content, you're able to communicate a lot more. You're able to basically start bringing more options into your problems um, space and like how to problem solving space. And it sort of just happens organically. So I think, and from a gaming perspective, we should look at this as don't just play one thing because kids can get very comfortable with just one thing. This is my favorite book. This is my favorite toy. This is my favorite game. And although that's natural for kids to do, opening their eyes to new things is also super, super important. Otherwise, you have a 32-year-old guy that only wants to eat pizza rolls because his parents never said that he should eat anything else besides that, um, based on a true story. Pizza rolls sounds so good. <laughs> They are delicious. But it shouldn't be the only thing you're willing to eat. So It's true. Yeah. I I do think, though, that games help with this branching out because there is a similar thread to 
almost all games that you know that you are going to be sitting down, you're going to be playing at the table, you are going to be following the rules, you are probably going to take turns, you are probably going to be working towards a goal that you know what the goal is at the beginning. There will be set actions you take to accomplish that goal. So as different as the rules can be, there are like the framework is still similar enough that you can apply knowledge from one game to another. Yep. And it's important to take those steps. When you introduce a new game, whether this be to a kid or a, a new hobbyist gamer, you don't want to necessarily introduce something that is completely different from the previous thing that they liked. Take something from that and say, oh, it's like this other game in this way, but it differs in this, this, and this way. And that will help you create that content space better than just saying, all right, now we're going into a completely different world that has nothing to do with this other thing I taught you. Because starting over fresh is hard. It's always going to be hard. Building on what you already know is much easier. Which is how legacy games are so much fun. Yes. Because the end result of a legacy game is an insane game that nobody could ever learn how to play by sitting and reading the rule book. But those like little introductions bit by bit suddenly oh, well, I know how to do all these things. Yep, and it means more. It just means more in general as you build on that. For sure. All right, critical thinking. Ready, go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that games teach excellent critical thinking skills. I Decision-making. Um, working with others and decision-making as a team, especially, super, super important. Well, and this gives you... like. Games give you a safe place to solve complicated problems. Yeah. If you had to, in real life, cure the world of four colored viruses that are going to take over and destroy everybody, that's a lot of pressure. But <laughs> after <laughs> but after playing Pandemic two or 300 times, you're ready to I take on. You can do oh, it. Oh, I got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> give so, me four good players and I've got this. Yep. I'll be the dispatcher. You just need a medic, a scientist, a researcher, and a dispatcher. And you've got it. Every single time. I can save the world. Yep. Who's overstaffed? I'll tell you that for sure. (laughs) But like, and critical thinking with games, there are so many different ways that this applies. You know, Pandemic's one of those. It's like, okay, fine. But you can also look at all the escape room games. I mean, just as... Example after example after example. Like, these are just nothing but puzzles over and over and over. Then you have your Euro games. I got to get the most points. How do I do that? How am I going to take different strategies? You have your, you know, Ameritrash games where it's like, okay, my army is going to conquer your army, but I know there's dice involved. So how am I going to mitigate this dice, uh, dicey random effect and, you know, take over the world? You have your magic games where it's like, I need to build a deck that's going to be awesome. And they're all different levels, but everything is I just is need to spend $600 and then I've got it. Easy. Which could be, how am I going to make $600? Or how am I going to get my parents to spend $600? <laughs> all gonna of make these sure are I like. Have a good job and go to school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All these things are like critical thinking skills that you can learn. I mean, this was just like a no brainer when it comes. Well, that's an oxymoron, I guess. But this is it's just like <laughs> it, when you're playing games, this just comes out so much and not Monopoly. Monopoly does not teach any of these skills that we've done so far, like which is one of the reasons why Monopoly is so bad. It it's does. not collaborative. No communication is involved that is productive. There's very little content. Negotiation. Uh, 
It's it's hostile. But even if we're talking about like little kid games, something as simple as memory, flipping yeah. over the tiles, that does that teaches so many critical thinking skills. And watching kids try to figure it out and seeing the kid figure out for the first time that they weren't paying attention and somebody else was and they stole their match, watching that kid make that connection and then the next time around, they're not talking to their neighbor instead of paying attention. They're paying attention because they're going to get it this time. Yeah. Yep. So I think, I mean, like I say, there are some games that are not following these six C's things, but most of the games that we play, most of our hobbyist games can apply to these in one way or another. Um, I think the next one, it, it goes hand in hand with a lot of the things we've ever, we've talked about, but creative innovation. So what do you think of this one? I think, you know, trying to figure out how to win a game is all about creative innovation. You try something, it doesn't work, so you have to go back and try something different. And then keep that process up until you find something that does work. And that's how you learn how to win a game, is trying something, going back to the drawing board, getting creative, looking at the problem from a different way, over and over until you get there. I think on the podcast they mentioned, and I'm going to try to quote this, um, creative innovation also depends on having strong content and strong critical thinking, because you have to hit the right buttons to know how to make something that's truly novel. It doesn't just come from monkeys in a jar of paint. It comes from actually being thoughtful. <laughs> Which I think is is like amazing. And this is where you start seeing kids do things that you don't expect, especially that that three to five year old range. Um, it is I have I have nieces that are three and five. Actually, I guess they're four and six now, but three and five last year. Um, and watching how they think is really, really cool because they will solve problems in ways that you would have never thought of. And they're probably not going to necessarily work, but they don't actually completely fail either. And it's just, it's so cool to watch that process come out and presenting them with challenges. They love challenges. They love figuring things out. And I I just, I do know know. with like young kids, they also ask like sometimes like really interesting questions because to them, like all questions are legitimate. Yep. Like they don't know enough that they're asking, they're kind of asking like a weird a weirder kind of like, I don't want to say dumb question, but like, a, like a strange question or a question that's too broad or something like that. Yeah. But like I, all questions are like fair game. Yeah. And you can answer them and they'll be like, oh, okay. And then just take that answer and file it away. You know, and sometimes they'll ask questions that they're not ready for the answer to. And they'll, I've seen That really them, tests your creative innovation. Yeah. Then you have to come up with an answer that answers like, the spirit of their question, like what they were looking for rather than what they literally asked. Yeah. Because you know that they're not really looking for, you know. When a a four-year-old looks at you and says, why do things die? They're not really looking for the answer. Like, it's it's a different kind of answer. But they'll ask these questions because they're generally curious. And you don't even, oftentimes you don't even know where the question comes from. But you have to be careful and you have to make sure you're within their content space, what they know already. And don't overthink it because they're probably not going to overthink it. They're probably just going to be, oh, okay, just wondering and carry on. Sometimes just because they do yeah, is it a perfectly fine answer. <laughs> yep. Unless you get into the why loop. 
which can be fun too. But see, I just let it keep being a loop, (laughs) just because. Because why? why? Because Because. (laughs) not satisfying. Because (laughs) Uh, this is why you're not an expert, but you do know how to tolerate children. All right, the last one, and this should come no surprise, is confidence, which really incorporates all of the things above this. But what else do we think about confidence? It is an extremely important skill. I think it is often almost frowned upon sometimes in kids. Like, you don't want your kid to be overconfident. So I think we can sometimes hamper true confidence. We can confuse confidence and arrogance. Yes. And an arrogant child seems bad. And I would say that... Well, an an, arrogant anyone. (laughs) Yeah. And I would say that an arrogant child probably is bad, but there is a difference between arrogance and confidence. Mm Mm-hmm. I think arrogance is more external. Confidence is more internal, if that makes sense. Well, I think arrogance is like a misplaced sense of confidence that comes from a lack of failure, whereas confidence is learned through failure. I like that. From the podcast, this is a very hard one for me as a parent, as I suspect for everyone as a parent, which is our children learn the most through failure. If we never let them fail then they never know what it feels like to thrive and succeed. So if it's a growth mindset, it's grit, the perspective to keep as at it, even though the low, uh, even though the tower fell down when you tried to make it high. So basically, confidence comes from failure. Arrogance may come from over-success. Mm-hmm. I can see that. If you don't let your kids fail enough, I think they become, well, you risk. Like some yeah. kids just are good kids and you can't mess them up. <laughs> yeah. But you do risk these things. It's hard, though, to, like, find those lines because you it is so hard to watch your kid fail. But a game is a safe space for failure to happen because it doesn't really have real life consequences. Yeah, It is just a game. And I will say that most people that I know are not confident or at least could be more confident. Most people are afraid of failing. They're afraid of doing something they're not going to be good at. Therefore, they avoid doing that thing. And the one thing that if you can teach your kids anything, it's that failing is okay. And you should do it as often as you can, because you're going to learn so much by trying and failing than not trying and running away from the chance of failure. And that failing is not a reason to not try again. Yes. That failure is just our first attempt. How many times have you ever won a game the first time you played it? Well, me often, but I'm arrogant. So. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think also you like have created this weird bubble for yourself in which you learn the game and then you get a whole bunch of people to learn the game after you. So like you're still the skilled player, even if it's your first playthrough. Well, in all seriousness, seriousness, losing a game Like, playing games is great because losing games, like you said, is that safe place. And playing a lot of different games and understanding you're not going to be good at them, that is super, super important. And I've actually seen hobbyist players where they don't want to play, they don't want to play a Euro game because they're not good at them. They don't want to play, it's not that they're not fun, it's that they feel like they're going to lose. They can't be competitive. And I've seen gamers do that. It's like, I don't want to play this game because I'm just not good at that. But that's okay. Play the game. Be bad at it. It teaches you how to be bad at things. Nobody is good at anything the first time they do it. Even if I do win the first game I play, it doesn't mean I'm good at that game. 
It just means I'm better than the other three people that were sitting at the table. So, like, there's no reason to be arrogant about that. It's there's learn how to lose and teach your kids how to lose, and you are going to be more well rounded in general. Also, teach your kids how to win. Yes. Nobody yeah. likes a sore winner. <laughs> that is that that borders on that arrogance, confidence, yeah. arrogance versus confidence <laughs> thing. Yeah. How to be a Remind great. Remind them of all the times they lost. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple things that I think are interesting um, of just like politeness to teach kids. And I think you can use games to do that too. Like how to be a polite winner is, mm-hmm. is a good thing. How to be a polite receiver of gifts. I don't know how exactly you do that, but like when you give a kid a gift and they open it up and they look at it and they toss it aside just so they can open the next present. I'm like, that's not a polite way of opening presents. Like, like teaching them, I don't know, those manners. And I, I don't know how it goes with games, but somehow I'm going to make that work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fit it in there. I mean, I think modeling is super important. Um, I think you can do this with games. You can do it with present opening. Your kids are sponges and they're watching everything that happens around them. So if you want your kid to say please and thank you, you need to say please and thank you. If you want your kid to be a thoughtful gift opener, you have to show them what it looks like when you open a gift. And, you know, that if you want them to take a turn nicely and wait for the, their opponent politely, that's what you do when you play a game with them. Yep. All right. I want to do, I'm going to add one more thing that I have, I don't know, been looking for an outlet to talk about for a while. And that's role-playing games and what those can teach us. Because they are cooperative. There's a lot of communication involved, a lot of critical thinking, a lot of innovation, collaboration. collaboration. All of those things are there. But I will tell you, if you are sitting at the head of the table, you're the game master, dungeon master, whatever the game calls you, and you have to manage a group of four to six people, and you do that every week, and you that's your teenage years, you are ready for business. You are ready for <laughs> meeting management. You are ready for taking care of projects and taking charge of things. You have learned so many organization and collaboration skills by sitting and doing that without even realizing you have. You will never sit at a table in a meeting and be afraid to speak up or afraid to take charge. I think this goes for players as well in some ways. I think DMing, yes, it teaches you more management skills, but any player at the table, they need to know this is my turn is coming up. I need to be prepared. You have to be ready. You have to be listening to your teammates. What is the rest of the team doing? If we're going to go stealth in here, I can't just run in sword drawn Leroy Jenkins. I, you know, you've yeah. got to be part of the team. It teaches so much about being part of a team. Well, when to pause and let other people talk, when to mm-hmm. pick up and, you know, you know, basically talk when someone else pauses and get your viewpoint in there. All of these things are amazingly important skills that I hear from pretty much every role player I've ever talked to that's done it for more than a couple of years. It's like, I've learned so much from playing role-playing games and how to deal with meeting and, and people and stuff like that. If you ever want to become excellent at knowing when it is your turn to talk and how to carry a conversation without talking over a whole bunch of people, I recommend trying to remote record a podcast. <laughs> it is its own challenge. It was a little bit easier when we were in person, though. And by that, a lot easier. Yeah. Oh, those um, nonverbal cues. They all count on. <laughs> 
The other thing I have noted down here is telling someone how to do something versus teaching someone how to figure something out. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I think I was listening to a How I Built This for the person who did, um, who made Spanx. And I listened to that too. <laughs> yep. She said she was 16 years old when her dad gave her some motivational speaker tapes. I don't remember who it was, but she realized at that point that she had been up to that point being told how to think or what to think, but not being taught how to think. And that like changed her perspective on everything. It's like, oh, I can actually have my own ideas. I can come up with my own solutions. And I think that is a big, big thing. I think what we try to do is we try to tell people how to do the right thing as opposed to teach people how to decide for themselves what the right thing is, regardless of the topic. I think this comes to from our protecting people from failure. If you tell them how to do it right, they won't fail. But if you let them figure it out, they're going to fail a whole bunch before they figure out how to do it right. And watching somebody fail is so hard. Especially when you can fix it. Yeah, I'm looking down the barrel of potty training. (laughs) (laughs) That's a dirty barrel. (laughs) Uh, It sure is. And I am not looking forward to it. And the hardest part is it's teaching. You have to, this is like their first skill that they learn. And, and it's, it involves so much failure and it involves so much gross failure <laughs> that you have to clean up and you just have to let it happen and not get upset about it. And it's, I'm not looking forward to it, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's something, it's a good thing to take away from gaming with kids is it is not their fault when they fail. It's mm-hmm. just natural part of them, a natural yeah. part of just growing up and being human, right? And it is also not your fault that they're failing. So because it's not your fault, it's okay to let them fail. Mm-hmm. And we tend to think that, oh, if they're failing, I'm failing. And I don't want to fail, so I want to fix this. I want to succeed. It's not up to you in a lot of these cases. You're not the one that's succeeding. So just kind of keep that in mind, whether you're playing games or potty training, it's not your fault. If they fail, it's okay that they fail. <laughs> All right. Anything else on this? I, I thought this this would, was way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. You sent me this article and I started, I just listened to it. But yeah, I was like, oh, this is not as much about gaming. And then it's like, oh, but it's super applicable to gaming. Yep. All right, we, we do there. have a listener mail that I'm going to have Kitty read because she loves this one. I do. I'm so excited. So this is from Brand, and he says, as an educator, I found much of the discussion in this episode, so this is about um, getting better at games or getting better at games feedback. Um, I found much of the discussion in this episode interesting. You all mentioned the idea of that sweet spot where something isn't too hard or too easy so that it remains interesting and desirable of pursuit. Lev Vygotsky deemed this the zone of proximal development, and in education, we constantly aim to make sure our lessons are in this zone for all students. We use scaffolding, accommodations for certain students, to make sure that we can teach them the same lesson to all students at varying skill levels. In the same way, teaching a game to a mixed group of people who might have different experience levels with games, we need to make sure that we give accommodations to people who aren't familiar with mechanisms of a game. What is the best way to give these scaffolds besides just 
playing an open hand that will keep the more experienced players engaged while giving the unexperienced players enough help that they keep playing. So for me, I like the pairing them up. So you pair the experienced gamer with the non-experienced gamer. You have them sit every other. So I can like I can explain the rules. And then if you have any questions, ask the person next to you because they have, you know, they probably understand the game better. I don't think I'd use that term, especially if nobody's played the game. It's like, uh, Fletcher, you sit next to Kitty because Kitty's smarter than you. So she can help you after I explain <laughs> the same rules to both of you. But you can I'm do that big, in, a, in a gentler way. I'm a big fan of narrating my turn. So I'm not revealing any information differently than I would if I had just played it. But I kind of say out loud everything I'm doing. So I was teaching Wingspan recently. And it's, all right, so I'm going to play a bird card. So I'm taking my action cube and I'm placing it here, which means I have to spend an egg. So I take my egg from this card and put it back into the supply and go through step-by-step way more detailed because normally I would just say, I'm playing a bird and then do it. And playing with my mom and Spencer, who I play with all the time, they're like, okay, cool. And they just kind of watch to make sure I'm not cheating, but vaguely because they trust me. Right. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's probably less that like you're going to be cheating and more like making sure that you didn't mess something up on accident. Right. You didn't miss something. than they are. <laughs> 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 they assume that if you forget something, cheater, cheater. Do you have any uh, other advice here, Fletcher, before we move on? Um, no, I think both of what you guys said is probably pretty good. I mean, yeah, it, like I, I'm kind of like what he was mentioning, uh, what Brent, what Brent was saying, like playing a round or two open hand and just like explain everything that is happening. And then you can just be like, okay, everybody kind of like get the gist of it. Um, that way. Also, the more experienced players, if they've played the game before, they can help teach other people at the same time. So it's not just like one person teaching and like, you know, a few people paying attention and a few people like totally zoning out. Like everybody is like helping and teaching the people who are less experienced. Yeah, I like that when I have someone who's played the game before. I'm like, all right, I'm going to set up the game. And Kitty, you teach Fletcher how to play as I set everything up. And... That I mean, obviously, that's not always possible if you're ex- teaching a brand new group, but sometimes you can rope somebody into like helping you and assisting the players that need more assisting and giving a higher level to those people that are don't require the most assistance. All right. So Brand continues. On a strictly gaming note, my wife doesn't enjoy games where she doesn't see opportunities to get better. She didn't enjoy King of Tokyo at all because it is so luck-driven and dice mitigation is really low. We... Recently started playing Viticulture, and after three games, she's hooked because she can see the different decision paths and strategies she can follow. We are very different in that I enjoy learning new games and don't necessarily care if I've cracked the game before moving on to learning something new. But she wants to learn a game and get really good at it before learning a new game. If I try to teach her more than one new game a month, she does not enjoy it at all. So it seems there is also a ZPD, Zone of Proximal Development, for the amount of new games that somebody wants to learn. Just a thought. Yeah, and I think this goes back to what we were talking about with content, in that when you're broadening someone's you know sphere of content, you have to cater to what they are comfortable exploring and expanding on. Like, not everyone is going to want that same level. Some people are just like, give me more, give me more, give me more. Others are, give me more, and then let me digest this and really get comfortable with it, okay, now you can give me more 
and I can be comfortable going into the next step. I feel like I've talked about Vygotsky on this podcast before. If you have, it was a name that went straight over my head, and I had I just smiled and nodded. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think <laughs> we were talking about we were either talking about playing games with kids or teaching games, and now I'm going to have to go back and listen to old episodes because it's going to make me crazy. But I am all about Vygotskyan theory. I think the zone of proximal development. You've got your bullseye, uh, learned helplessness, all super important for child development. The bullseye sounds somewhat familiar. Yeah, so, you know, he talks about the zone of proximal development. That's the inner ring of the bullseye. So in the middle is things that you've already mastered, and the outer rim are things that are too hard for you to master, and you want to keep everything in the middle ring of the bullseye. That's where you're stretching yourself. And learned helplessness is what happens when you provide scaffolding that's no longer needed. They learn to not stretch themselves then. Maybe we'll do an entire episode just on that and how it applies to gaming. Now we really will be becoming a parenting podcast and no one wants to listen to my parenting <laughs> podcast. My Another kid parenting is, podcast. My kid is like, I don't know how much of the day I spent trying to stop him from climbing the baby gate to pull down the Christmas tree on top of himself. But it was a yeah. really high percentage of my day. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced that toddler is just synonymous with small human that wants to kill himself. It's not that far off. <laughs> he really, I should, I showed him that there was an ornament that was a bell, and I shouldn't have done it because then he just wanted to ring that bell. Yeah, I've done that before. Oh, look at this cool thing! Oh, I just showed you this oh, cool this thing. What the just happened? The only thing you want now. Ah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, you can follow us on Facebook at slash Tabletop Game Talk Podcast, <laughs> Twitter at Tabletop Game TLK, Kitty is Lawful Good Mom, Fletcher is Net Fletch. I am Game Master Chris. You can leave us a review on iTunes, or you can go to tabletopgametalk.com slash Patreon to help us out there. Tabletop Game Talk is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Thanks for listening, and remember, we love your feedback, so email us with comments or questions about today's topic at feedback at tabletopgametalk.com. And our credits today are from Robert McMillan. So let's see how he does. Adam Harrison, the SGC, Jason Strong, Terrence Milner, Stephen Seitz, Brian Arnold, Sean P. Kelly, C. Marie, Rudy Liu, Benjamin Heimowitz, Jerry Huang, Stephen Phillips, Caleb O'Brien, Jennifer Engelbrecht, Justin Willard, Christopher Dong, Jason Marks, Jeremy Fisher, David Radke, Nick Quickstra, David Sellers, Jason Rodney, Michael Yanikowski, Miles Clark, Cindy Lum, Phil Schwartzel, Ann Reynolds, Eric Huffman, Adrian Dong, Nate, Fads Flintham, Sean Peck, Eric Zelander, Mike Smith, Trevor Davis, Tim Vernick, Chris Lowe, Joe Hoover, Timothy Gross, Glenn Cutter, Jesse Walkowiak, Emil Jewel Jacobson, Marina Stevens, Brady Meltzer, Gregory Huber, Don Gilstrap, Stephen Judd, Leanne Velhurst, Christopher Letko, John Lewis, Joe Rackstad, Ron Nelson, Neil McLaughlin, Sarah Wentworth, Weatherman Keefe, Nicholas Lotz, Agnes Toth, Paul Raymer, and Jimothy. And Matthew Droke. Until next week, keep playing games and having fun. So I am going to give a shout out to listener Bill Anderson for recognizing Sydney at PAX Unplugged out of context and thinking it was me because she always wears her hair the same style that I do in our illustration. She came up to me. She's like, someone came up, thought I was Kitty, but I wasn't. (laughs) She never is. She never is.
but yeah. she does look a lot like the illustration of me, which is funny because the biggest difference between me and Sydney is about eight inches. In yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting down, you look identical, though. Oh, you know, yeah, totally. We <laughs> <It> could be <laughs> sisters. 